Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. Sound and Vision is sponsored by Golden Artist Colors. Manufactured in upstate New York, an employee-owned company, Golden makes the best acrylics, oil paints, and watercolors that you can buy. You can find them in your local art store, or you can find them online at goldenpaints.com. Gianna Camido is an artist who earned a BFA from the New York State College of Ceramics at Alfred University and an MFA from the University of Iowa. She's been included in exhibitions at Fleischer Ullman Gallery in Philadelphia, the Akron Art Museum in Akron, Ohio, Lehman College Art Department in New York, Webster State University in Ogden, Utah, MoCA Cleveland, the National Academy in New York, and the Drawing Center in New York, amongst others. Gianna is the recipient of numerous awards and fellowships, including the Ohio Arts Council Award, the Cleveland Art Prize, Artist in Residence at Yaddo, and the Pollock Krasner Foundation Grant. In 2018, her work was featured in the inaugural edition of The Front International in the Cleveland Triennial for Contemporary Art in Cleveland, Ohio. She lives and works in Kent, Ohio, where she is a professor of painting at Kent State University and is represented by Rachel Uffner Gallery in New York. Here's Gianna and I in conversation. I'm so excited to talk. It's it's nice to. I'm I'm gonna be riding off some manic energy of this morning. Great, I'm in the opposite, just, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just pouring. I'm just gonna pour some like gasoline on the fire. <laughs> the grand irony of it all is that I'm not teaching this semester. So oh, me either. I'm me either. Figuring out like the schools in New York City just shut down yesterday. Yeah. And then that whole process of everything and. You know, I I uh, curated this group show that opened yesterday, so that was kind of busy, and this has been a lot of, it's a lot at once. No, and that show looks really wonderful. I'm sorry, it's this is the longest I've gone without being in New York. We're we're at the year mark, which is yeah, sort of like more significant and sad than I thought it would be. I've really kind of identified as somebody who, though I never lived in New York, spends a lot of time there. So to have right. to have gone a year without doing those rounds is uh it's a morning of sorts so for sure well if it if it makes you feel better i feel like i haven't been in new york for the right that's year. true that's true <laughs> and i'm in it <laughs> that's what i hear from people on the ground i'm not really it's a good time to miss it basically but yeah it's like everyone's missing it right yeah yeah and i'm on sabbatical this fall which happened pre-covid and has been right. from a researching point of view, like a bust, you know, I'm, I, I, I mean, I'm getting enough, I'm getting plenty done, but it's not, it doesn't have the travel or the real kind of focus time that it would under a normal sabbatical circumstances. But from the human being point of view, it's nice to have the flexibility to spend with my family or, right. you know, be you know, just keep everybody close and safe. So it's, I'm trying to take the long view with it for sure. Well, yeah, well, the idea of a sabbatical during this is you can't do that external research stuff as much, but ideally you can, I mean, are you working in a studio a lot? Yeah, I am. Um, I don't know if I'm working 
I'm not working more in the studio because my I have two little kids and they're with a sitter during the day from 8:30 to three. But if they were at school, they'd be away from eight to six. So kind of carved right. down the daily hours. Um, but again, that's on me. I mean, there's no there's my kids live with me half the time and their father half the time. So there's really no excuse for me to not put some night hours in and tap back into that grad school mode and, uh, you know, burn the midnight oil. Um, um, that's where I am now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's gotten yeah. to that because the whole school at home thing. Yeah. You know, we've never had a nanny and you know, we've, it's always been between the two of us. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, he's old enough now that he doesn't need that. But I mean, I have to be around. Sure. You know? Yeah. I'm not just going to yeah. go to the studio all day while I was here because, you know, it's it's hard to like do school, cook and do all that, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. what I do is I've been here doing that stuff. And then after dinner, I go to the studio. Yeah. And then I work, you know, through as long as I can go yeah. without like passing out but don't you <laughs> Which, feel that nag of like oh I need to get home or oh I need to go watch that show like like it's hard for me to not have that um kind of end time always in the in the back of my mind like it's getting late I, I don't would wanna, I don't want to walk home at midnight or whatever yeah yeah I would if I weren't in my apartment all day sure fair you know enough I mean? right. but since I'm <laughs> stuck here all day yeah. And, you know, as I'm working, if if it's the kind of thing at home where I can put on, like, you know, Seth Meyers or Colbert in the background or something. Right, right, and, right. Or, you know, or like a podcast, then I feel like I get my entertainment fix as far as that's concerned. And then when I go to the studio, it's just go time, you know, yeah. and then I can. Yeah. And it's just a matter of battling that, like, as I get closer to 50 years old, my right. bedtime just <laughs> My body's like, no, no, your bedtime's nine thirty. Remember? And it's like, no, no, I got stuff to do. Almost fifty years old. Fifty's <laughs> the new thirty. <laughs> Is it? I've never... I'm telling myself that every day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. That's that's a good mantra. Right? <laughs> I'm sure it is actually, but it, you know, it's so funny how your body's just like, no, no, yeah. you need, you need to do this now. No, I spent. And we just fight that. This is going to be fascinating for your listeners, but I spent the majority of this week arguing with human resources about why I needed a new adjustable <clears throat> table because I'm getting old and my back hurts when I bend over for eight hours at a time working. And I'm like, this oh, is yeah. it. This is what it's become. I used to fight for money to like go to Paris and now I'm fighting for a tiltable work surface. But <laughs> Hey, I'm right there with you. And I don't care. No, like I'm, I'm willing either. for this. I'm willing for this podcast to be kind of like middle-aged artist yeah. gripes. Slightly geriatric. <laughs> yeah, you know, twenty-year-olds who just graduated from school. I don't care. Like you no. gotta listen to. You're gonna be here in like you know one and a half decades anyway. Right. So get ready right. for it. Don't no. say we didn't warn you that. Like now, when I stretch a canvas, my hands die for like thirty <laughs> minutes afterwards, <laughs> and I have to wear gloves and use canvas pliers. I remember being a grad student and just like stretching those things raw, no gloves, oh, yeah. just no stretching pliers. those I things raw. <laughs> it's so dirty. <laughs> that is that is graphic. But I would have like you know, like like bleeding from my yeah. fingers from stretching the canvas. But not not anymore. No, not anymore. No, and my significant other is ten years older than me, so I just see the the future even more clearly every day and which isn't to say that he's not you know in wonderful shape and not an artist but still it's like oh yeah the gray hairs come in yeah. you know. yeah. 
We're lucky to have. We're lucky to be getting older. That's what my father would always say. It's better than the alternative. So. Oh, really? My dad used yeah. to say, it's hell getting old. <laughs> That's is all he would ever say. Is <laughs> okay, let's, let's rein it back in so we, <laughs> we don't lose all our, our grad school listeners. No, I'm just kidding. Um, no, they have daddy issues, too. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Don't we all? Um, so how how was how was your life growing up as far as like you know getting to my where life? you're getting to today? Yeah, sure. My life was very easy growing up. Um, my parents are both academics, math and science professors. Um, Goodness. So I fought. Yeah, I, but both with their own creative practices. My dad. Um, just to circle back to the daddy issues. My dad's always made kind of found art sculptures and he's a marine biologist. So a lot of that stuff came from like trolling the beaches and collecting things. And that, that notion of like always having your eyes on and looking, looking for things to bring back to the studio was just like a natural part of, of summer vacations with them. Um, yeah. And they took us traveling on, when they went on sabbatical. So we lived in Norway for a year and New Zealand for almost a year. And that just it like didn't occur to them not to take me and my little sister with us, um, which is something I have not been able to do with my children, um, despite kind of following in the academic path. But I think with, with art, it's, you know, I have this great big studio here in Ohio. I kind of don't need to go someplace else to, to be productive. Yeah. Um, but they, you know, we grew up in suburban Maryland outside of DC um, for the most part after living in Maine for a while as a little kid. And um, it was the 90s and 80s and it was a pretty like robust time to go to art school or like feel like you're able to just do what you wanna do. I I see a difference in my first generation students here at Kent where they really have to fight to be art majors. That was just never a conversation. and I, um, I don't know. I'm, I'm probably simplifying a little bit. There was plenty of like torture and grief and angst as a teenager, but uh, certainly that wasn't coming from any desire to move forward as a creative person. There were, right. It was about How, like well, wanting to drive with people older than me in cars. You know, that, that that's yeah. sort of the extent of that argument. Yeah. Well, how old were you when you moved from Maine to D.C.? Area. We were, I was only five, four or five, but my, as I said, my dad's a marine biologist, so we go there still every summer. He's got study sites up there studying muscle bed growth. Um, uh-huh. My mom's a math professor, so they did a lot of collaborative work studying uh, like fractal patterns in muscle bed growth and how tracking that so tracked cool. um, like weather and environmental shifts. So they were, yeah. I like to think, a little bit ahead of the curve on that and kind of didn't get some of their due um that sort of more holistic research has really taken off more recently um yeah. and of course as a teenager being forced to like go out with calipers and measure baby muscles in the mud flats was torture but now seems like a pretty <laughs> it was quite a gift to be able to be to like engage in research at a young age with, with my whole family um yeah so we moved from me when i was five but it's been very much a part of you know, two or three months every summer, even, even now we go back there. Yeah. Was it a move on, uh, related to governmental work? No, it was, it was a move for a teaching position. He taught at uh, oh, okay. Hood, Hood College in Maryland. Yep. Yeah. Okay. No, they both yeah, are that, very much that teachers. Air, move, 
moves to that area are a lot of times related to, you know, D.C. or government. Things. Sure. And, and where we were in, in Frederick, Maryland now is considered kind of a suburb of D.C. At the time, it was Fredneck, Maryland. And, you know, it was like all yeah. Confederate flags and um, really felt like the sticks. So when I go back now, I kind of right. can't believe the fancy restaurants and little boutiques and stuff. They've, they've since put a, a rail line from D.C. out to Frederick. But it, it did not feel connected to the city and really wasn't until I was in high school and started to go to music shows and stuff in DC and Baltimore that I really thought of there being any proximity beyond like field trips to the Smithsonian once a year. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, uh, I mean, it sounds like you got a great resource of experience yeah. and insights and, you know, that it's funny that that idea of fractals is so interesting. I took a class in grad school on fractals. It was an elective. Mm-hmm. It was talking about measuring coastlines and understanding mm-hmm. nature mm-hmm. in relation to fractals. And it had a huge effect on my work. Sure. And and I didn't think it was, you know, I didn't see that coming. But that stuff is really fascinating. It's so visual. And uh, it, it seems like that kind of research would probably be applicable to the issues with the environment. It's uncanny how that sure, didn't really sure. take off governmentally. It still yeah, hasn't quite. Yeah, no, I know. I mean, well, I'm sure that it has. It's just not, it's not convenient. <laughs> um, yeah. So, uh, right. I mean, it, it's, I'm not a religious person, but when you see patterns and repetitions and things that suggest some measure of control or reliability beyond what's right in front of you there's definitely a certain comfort in that yeah for sure so um i guess maybe combing for beach glass and measuring muscles and stuff gave you a little bit of a combination of the visual and the tactile maybe absolutely and um you know i went to alfred university for undergrad which is a really big craft and kind of haptic hands-on program and again I started there in 1994, which I was reminding somebody the other day was like before email, (laughs) like before the internet. Um, And it was very much a program of scavenging and hunting and gathering and um, building something out of nothing. Um, Our first day in foundations class, they took us out into the woods and said, build a line you know, that was it. So to sort of create some sort of linear structure in space and then somebody flew over in an airplane and filmed it. So that that kind of like Andy Goldsworthy and, you know, taking from your direct environment yeah. and turning it into something else um, is, is really something I still think about in using a kind of limited set of materials in the studio or a limited range of patterns or motifs to build a kind of ever... Uh, or what feels like at this point, a kind of never ending resource of images. Um, and I started as a ceramics major too, ceramics and painting. Uh, Alfred is definitely known for its ceramics program. It's kind of hard to avoid that. And right. I, I was able to build abstractly uh, out of slabs of clay in a way that felt really organic and natural. Whereas painting, I was definitely rooted in this deep and corny and I want to paint naked women and fruit for the rest of my life. Um, and it took kind of developing forms in three dimensions in space to be able to bring that back into uh, the language of paint, um, which is something I could talk about all day long. Uh, but that was a kind of genesis of that for sure. Yeah, I mean, that that environment of Alfred, which is so 
you know, ceramic heavy and like mm-hmm. known for, well, at least I, I didn't go there, but knowing the ceramic reputation there, I, I can't imagine would, it, it would probably be impossible for that not to enter into the work. You know, I yeah. went to yeah. undergrad at Penn State and there was mm-hmm. a, there's a great ceramics program there. And while I was terrifically terrible at ceramics, <laughs> it had an impact just being over yeah. there and grabbing yeah. the clay and throwing things that tactile quality of, of art making, even if it doesn't enter, because like I think around the time that I started taking ceramics, I was doing a lot of collage work in the paintings, mm-hmm. and I don't think it's mm-hmm. coincidence that it was just like, sure. you know, the value of working with your hands and the utilitarian uh, interjection of that into, yeah. Yeah. you know, fine art, which is, I think, a great dynamic, you know, as far as like educationally. And it's is like the chickens are coming home to roost now because you can't turn a corner without seeing a painter making ceramics, much right? to the chagrin yeah. of my ceramicist friends. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, but it, it, I think it's a couple of things. You said something about, maybe you didn't say this, maybe I'm projecting, but the kind of functionality. And I, I never made, I never threw or made functional ceramics, but that was definitely the culture down there, you know, how well does this pitcher pour? How well does this handle operate or fit in your hand? And it, that kind of guideline for um, like quantitatively being able to analyze whether or not something works is a person like me kind of needs that whether I'm making something functional or something, um, you know, two dimensional um, that has a yeah. function but a different kind of function. and. Just the kind of bits and pieces or leap of faith of building something, putting it under a piece of plastic, coming back the next day and it's shrunk or it's cracked or taking it out of the kiln and the colors aren't what you expected uh, or things dripped. Um, I actually like hated, I hate that. Like that's why I don't make ceramics anymore, but it does kind of <laughs> teach you to like roll with, roll with it or uh, get just as much pleasure out of fixing mistakes as succeeding the first time. That's yeah. you know what we want our kids to be able to do, what we want our students to be able to do. And I probably unhealthily get off on uh, correcting wrongs, but right. it keeps me going. Yeah, every day. Yeah. yeah. I think the nice dynamic too, if for non-majors, when they would go into ceramics, there was kind of this house money thing of it's like, mm-hmm. well, yeah, I mean, I'm supposed to make this functional or mm-hmm. it's or for certain assignments. Like it's supposed to work, but you know what? I'm not a ceramicist really, so I can just go to right. that. And I think right, that right. like you're talking about that kind of rift between sort of ceramicists in earnest and then, you know, painters who are making ceramics. I mean, they're just like sure. screw it. When we don't <laughs> you could just sure, tell sure. like I am not paying attention to any of that. And, you know, a certain freedom in that, but then, you know, I'm sure it irritates well, I think it, it, I think none of us, you know, I mean, painters deal with this all the time. With and I'm not. This is not a direct. <laughs> I'll get in trouble for saying this. Not a direct comparison, but like paint and wine classes, or you know, the kind of craft of painting, or like a formula yeah. of painting. Um, we get frustrated when we see that, or we have students who want to kind of paint. Um, Paint like, paint like an inkjet printer, like top to bottom, just kind of complete an image yeah. as opposed to sort of building or discovering a painting. And I think that it's understandable that folks in other mediums, whether it's ceramics or now I think glass and textiles are having kind of a similar moment. Um, see a kind of shortcut to uh, the, the like 
end result that has a novelty to it, where it is very much a, a rigor and a scholarship like you know, everything that everything else. So I, I empathize. Yeah. And, and Alfred, it certainly was the, the king of the castle down there in ceramics. So painting was the, the ugly you know, stepchild that had to kind right, of claw right. its way up at the time. So it was sort of good, I think, to come at it, come to painting with that, from that position. Yeah, it's funny. I've never been, I think maybe because of my limitation of ability, I've never been a purist when it comes to technicality. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. no matter what, I understand the value of learning things and kind of like debunking them. Or, but I've never been one of those people like, you need to go all the way, you know, like I, I still watch right. Bob Ross late at night sometimes right, right. on Netflix. Like I like enjoy. He's, he's like, got I can, some good points. <laughs> he's yeah, he's got some chops. No, he, he, you know it's an, there's there's something to be said for you know what you don't know or, or bringing right, right. sort of. A, and but, I never learned painting that way. Um, you know, I never learned it through demos or. Uh, you know, somebody sitting down and saying these are the fat over lean and this and that. It's kind of been through teaching that I've had to, despite being dedicated to painting all the time, had to kind of teach myself some of the technical stuff to pass on. Um, yeah. But in my own paintings, I'm not using oil paint or acrylic. I'm using casein on a marble dust ground, which is much, much, much closer to putting slip down on a piece of greenware ceramics. Um, so in some ways, it's it's still I still feel like I have a foot in, in both worlds, and, yeah, it, funny, and it kind of it? As liberates a, as you. A, yeah, as a teacher, you you're teaching an, an an area like painting. Painting is so different if you're an mm -hmm. oil painter versus mm -hmm. acrylics versus you know uh, whatever you're using. You know, collage. Sure. They're so different. But it's funny that you're teaching in, in this broader terms. I mean, I kind of learned how to do glazing and learned a more traditional approach to painting. But that said, that was a long time ago. Right. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, yeah. I'm not yeah. thinking that way anymore. I have a very specific way that I've taught myself how to paint, which mm -hmm. is so idiosyncratic that, mm -hmm. you know, once in a blue moon, I'll get a, a student who wants to kind of paint in a way that I'm using acrylics mm -hmm. and it's like refreshing in a way because it's like, Oh, I can really show you some, right, right, some right, shortcuts right. here. But at the same time, I feel like, uh, you don't want to do this. Like, right. You, right. I know. I'm like, do, if you're going to use tape, I'm going to teach you how to use tape and it's not just putting down tape. It's like really hard to use tape. Yeah, <laughs> They're like, I'll just paint it, the straight line. <laughs> right. Right. You, and maybe you don't need to go down that route. Right. right exactly. Need, but yeah, it's it's it would be like someone who knows fresco, you know. It's like yeah. oh wow, like yeah. I can yeah. show you that, but it is a process, you know? right. right? But it's right. it's funny, like the same thing happens with digital media now. You know, I'm going to be teaching. I started a course that starts next semester hmm. in uh, digital painting, but it's like digital yeah. painting is a wide like. There's so many yeah. different programs. If you think about painting and you know analog painting there's oil there's acrylic you know there's a few like casing to squad you know there's mm -hmm. some mediums but not like software i sure. mean there is sure. so much painting software out there and everyone's going to be different so it's almost like as a, a in teaching you you teach the ideas and the sort of goals and the, the practice more than the actual physical way of making the thing you know I, I, that's absolutely my philosophy i i sometimes have to fight a little with my adjuncts who are, are who feel like they need to 
are in a position where maybe they have to just teach technique to keep the job or something. And, and but, you know, then they kind of jump to my upper division classes and it's like, but what do you want to paint? Or like, how do you want to paint? Or how does the, how does the um, form meet the function in some way? Um, and, and I think that's frustrating for, for students, um, for sure, you know, that they kind of yeah. have a, a technical chop, but not an idea about what to, what to do with it. So, to, so working backwards from that and coming to the idea first and then developing the process to serve it or allowing the process to be the content, um, is, that's the exciting part. That's definitely the fun part. I totally agree. And I think it's the hardest part. Absolutely. Because it takes a leap of faith. Anyone can learn, you know, anyone can learn a technique in a way. I mean, you may have more natural talent at the way you do it. And maybe you may be more facile, Mm -hmm. but anyone can really learn it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's like, uh, it's how hard you work at it or like how much you make it yours. that really sort of defines it for you. You know what I mean? And at the end of the day, that's, it's going to be you in your studio and and you got to make those choices. Yeah. I think teaching the daily practice of painting, which sounds like a fantasy right now, I would love to be in my studio every single day, but teaching that daily practice and that idea of working iteratively where you're just putting one foot in front of the other and undoing as much as you're doing is something that I'm, we're developing some new curriculum and I'm working on a new class that is very much just about that, about kind of letting the process determine the final, the final product for lack of a better word that's going to be really hard to do remotely or in a kind of hybrid yeah. form um but we'll you know we've, i've got 22 more years before i retire to figure it out so <laughs> <laughs> work in progress well i think everyone's adjusting to that kind Absolutely. of you know, shift well are you everyone's teaching adjusting your, to everything are you teaching your digital or digital painting class as a result of covid or is this no that was before? starting before that that oh, was kind of, yeah, I don't want to use the word serendipitous, yeah. but uh, it, it was a coincidence. <laughs> Thank you. That's on you. <laughs> Send all hate mail. <laughs> no, I, it was just a coincidence. You know, I mean, I use a lot of, my thing is anytime everyone, like when it comes to younger students, gets into something for one reason, mm-hmm. I just intuitively want to say, well, you know, there's this other way you could do it. Mm-hmm. So they don't mm-hmm. feel limited. Mm-hmm. So like I found so many of my students were into manga and like yeah. anime. Yeah, yeah. But they didn't know much at all about Japanese culture, where right. that comes from. Right. It's not just a cartoon form. It's in, right. indebted to the culture. So I started a Japanese program where you would go study, and it would not only be anima, anime and manga, but you would also get like art classes and learn about the difference mm-hmm. between Western and Eastern art and stuff like that. So when it comes to digital painting, I think I'm... It's funny because I was looking online at uh, you know syllabi for digital painting courses just randomly mm-hmm. and seeing what they're like and it's mostly just like like a youtube tutorial of like how to right. use photoshop or something right. and i'm more interested in thinking about well where does digital painting converge with like fine art and like how can you use the digital media in a more fine art way or think about it in the context of not just like backgrounds for games not that yeah. there's anything yeah. wrong with that mm-hmm. but like let's let's look at it from a different angle so i mean verdicts out we'll see how it goes but, yeah you know. no that's interesting i have no desire to teach that class but i would be really interested to see how how you do it um and that just is about my kind of insecurity and shortcomings with with uh you know working online or working digitally or just wanting to get yeah. my hands dirty in a, in a different way but I, i'm being i'm i'm joking because i'm acknowledging that i'm being kind of stubborn 
uh, about that reality. And, and we have so many students who come to art through that same door. And Kent doesn't have an animation program. So without telling them to leave and go to the school up in Cleveland that does, how do we fold those interests in and not just push against it, which I think for years was the, you know, denying its reality as an art form. Um, right. Now we have to say that it's definitely part of the visual culture that they're that they're coming from um, and operating in. And, and if we just if we close it, it's you know we'll lose them. So yeah, and I think it's refreshing too to well I don't know maybe but to have someone like myself who's not an expert in right. in wow. digital media. I mean I use yeah. it a lot and I'm good at mm -hmm. what I need to do for what I need to do. But I've been able to integrate it in my work in a way that has gone out to the world. You know? mm -hmm. So I think it's important to, to have people to look up to or professors who are using things in unconventional ways. And so it opens up the idea of like, oh, you don't have to just be some like guru who's in front of a computer right, 25 right, right. hours a day, you know, to, mm -hmm. to incorporate this into your work or whatever. So, I mean, some of my best painting teachers or just teachers in general, you kind of knew they weren't like masters of painting or whatever. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But they lit the fire under my butt that said, sure. hey, you could do it, you know? Sure. There's not enough of that, I think, in today's... I mean, mm -hmm. we have young kids. I feel like everything is like you have to be the best or it's, it's a product of like all this technology and information out there. It's like, I think these days there's a lot more like younger people are like, oh, I suck at that. I'm not yeah. doing that. Yeah, oh yeah. Whereas when I was growing up, it was like, well... Uh, I may not be great, but what else am I going to do? You know, I'm just going to try, you know, right. there was and, less and of a, like, this pressure and a healthy competition that I, I don't feel comfortable making too many like generational claims. Certainly when I was an undergrad at a tiny school in the middle of nowhere with nothing to do, but be in the studio, we were there and whoever left first lost, <laughs> like wh whoever stayed at the studio latest yeah. won that night. And I, my class is all, I shouldn't say all, but my kind of cohort from my freshman year of college are all still practicing artists and, and continue to motivate each other 20, 25 years later. I think at a big school like Kent, which is big and a state school and has a lot of first generation students, um, which makes it really rich and uh, challenging in other ways that I couldn't have foreseen how much I would enjoy when I started teaching here, but they don't have the same sense of community. A lot of them go home for the weekends or still live with their parents. Um, there isn't that kind of like hotbed of uh, constant pressure from each other. And yeah. I feel like a good part of my job, and I don't work with many of these students until they're sophomores or juniors or seniors, is to, to be the like, the coach or the cheerleader or the, the one getting them to push against each other and not just worry about what, what they think I want, which is definitely, you know, very boring. So, yeah, but I just, I think that's the way things shape with technology. It's yeah. like you, there's yeah. so many voices in the room and, Oh, this is the right way. Or this is a successful way. I think sometimes ignorance is bliss when mm -hmm. it comes to, especially mm -hmm. when you're younger, you know, sure. Sure. A great analogy, and then we'll leave it at this because I do want to talk about like what you do in your art and stuff. A great analogy, I think, is like social media because like now, like when you have like eleven-year-olds on Instagram, mm -hmm. there's this pressure that everyone's watching them, but really it's not that many. But there's a feeling that right. if I put yeah. something out there, 
everyone could see that and use that against me. And it's yeah, just not, yeah. that's not, it's not conductive for growth, I think, or taking yeah. risks. Oh, my nine-year-old. And then yes, I'll like burst into tears if we talk about this too much, but he did this little coding camp through the university this summer and they had to post their scratch game or whatever. And his first comment was, oh, it got, it got two views already or something like that. And I was like, you yeah. know what a view is? Like, you know what that little eyeball means? And you know that that view is like me and your dad. Like, it, it, I had to really suck it up and pretend that it wasn't making me very sad to hear him say that. Because they're, yeah. they're so much more fluent in that um, uh, c- kind of world of uh, just a different kind of accountability or people watching them that I don't want to impose my own insecurities onto them about it, let them navigate it in their own way. But, you know, we kind of straddle the generation of before and after, and it still feels a little scary to me. So whether it's, you know, posting your art on Instagram and getting upset, you making decisions in the studio based on like the number of likes one thing got or another, or right. something kind of bigger than that, you know, just in adolescence, is, it's, it's tough, it's tricky to navigate. Yeah, it's, I think to your point, we're since we're floating between, it mm-hmm. becomes ultra scary to us yeah. in a way. But it's probably, it's just changing. Like, yep. you know, when I was younger, you didn't have that pressure from like all that stuff. But like my soccer coach was just ruthless. You know what right, I mean? And right, he would just right, run right. us in the ground, yell at it. And like that would never happen these days. He would have been yeah. canceled like That's on day true. one. <laughs> so there's some, you know, it's just changing, right? Humans mm-hmm. are humans, and no matter humans what, we're humans. just going to have the same issues. Yep. It's just morphs. But we see it differently, so we're like, oh, my gosh, like, the young people can't handle that. Yeah. You know, it's no, so, they can handle but, it. They but can they handle can handle it. it. That's kind mm-hmm. of their environment. You know, you just get used to what... I thought about that way having a kid in New York City. I was like, oh, my gosh, like, how could you grow up in this place? You right. can't handle right. all the noise and the craziness. Nope. Totally fine. They're fine. Totally. Millions yeah. of them do it every day. <laughs> Right. Go out on a hike and it's like, ooh, but. Like, right, right. <laughs> you know what I mean? It just like evens itself out, I think. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. All right. So when you were in school, mm-hmm. what were you painting? What was the, what was the trajectory? I mean, uh, you mentioned a little bit about Alfred, but then what happened after that? Like, how did you progress out of that stage? Um, well, I started, well, this is important to mention. <laughs> Very important to mention. Um, I did start making paintings of my ceramic sculptures. Like that was the leap that where I would build these things and then light them and then make paintings of them. And that was a kind of like abstraction cheat that I have all of my students do now, but it was the bridge that I needed to generate what felt like my own information while still working representationally, which was just for whatever reason harder to do on a painting surface. And as I said before, kind of easier to do in three dimensions. So I just used my own sources and that felt like a way of kind of solving that problem. And then there was something about um, realizing that if I could see my own work and filter it and mediate it and spit it back out on the canvas, um, that I could do that just by kind of walking through the world in a different way and and starting to document architecture or spaces um, and kind of bringing that raw material back to the studio. Um, 
in a way that for whatever reason just hadn't been like articulated that clearly to me um, by my teachers. I, I kind of saw them making abstract work and wanted to do that, but didn't know how they were getting from point A to point B. So you, you, you yeah. figure out all these different personal strategies um, for doing that. And you mentioned um, Japan. My boyfriend at the time, ex-husband now, lived in Japan for two years. And so I, I did visit him a few times. And that uh, being in a landscape where I understood absolutely nothing, <laughs> like it wasn't like going to Europe where you can kind of piece together some language because the, right. the character, the alphabet is the same. I, I really felt like I was kind of immersed in an experience of abstraction where you had to use visual clues to determine if something was food or a cleaning product or, you know, if, if like, like just color and symbol um, were the signifiers by which I had to navigate. And that was a real awakening. That was a real moment of like, oh, this kind of defamiliarization of stuff is, is something that I can bring back home and think about how to simplify or um, strip down or just really get to like the meat of what's needed to communicate something. So yeah. I ended up, um, I, I went to grad school at the University of Iowa, which was also very much a kind of painter's school um, and was making work that was very, not great, but very stripped down, very kind of silhouettes or stencils, uh, kind of like the bare minimum of information. But, but what that did do was kind of focus the tension on color choices or um, tactile choices about surface um, and working some with somebody like John Dilg, who was really kind of dealing with a very spare palette and uh, kind of means of generating images, just got me to really pay attention to um, the how as much as the what. And I, I think that was really crucial for, for moving forward. Yeah. What, and, and just the landscape of Iowa, I mean, it's sure. so, I mean, I've only been to like Davenport, like a few mm -hmm. bigger, I don't know if you would call them big towns, but you know, I mean, how was that shift? That was terrifying. The first time I drove from my, <laughs> and I'd lived in, Bo it was, it was, I mean, I lived in Boston between uh, undergrad and grad school. I spent, you know, I grew up on the East Coast. I spent a lot of time in New York and, and more vertical places. And the first yeah, time yeah. I drove to Iowa, I remember getting to Ohio, which is ironic, and driving on 90 through Cleveland, which is half an hour from where I live now and going, who the fuck lives here? Like, what is this? Like, what is, what, who, made, who makes this choice? Um, right, right. But then pushing through Indiana and Illinois and finally getting to Iowa City um, was beautiful. And, and um, that, I know it's not Montana, but that like big sky or that sense of the horizon being like so far out of range that you felt very small was yeah. was actually really powerful. Um, and then certainly flying back and forth and seeing the kind of patchwork of agricultural landscapes, um, maybe like, you know, pocked by one building here and there um, was something that really struck me and, and really that I like, took a lot of pictures of the, have a lot of shoe boxes filled with, with old photographs of, of that. So. I loved living in Iowa. I was good friends with somebody who was not an artist, but a real estate appraiser. And we would drive around the country and look at buildings. And that was just like, like heaven, you know, kind of being on these long roads to nowhere. 
um, with some interesting structure at the end uh, probably yeah. had more of an impact than I realized at the time. Yeah, it's, it's funny how different, I mean, I've been lucky enough to drive across the country a few times, how mm-hmm. different the landscape is because mm-hmm. you think of, you know, middle America as being really flat and then, you know, in big sky or whatever, but it, I was so different. Like yeah. it's this yeah. level, yeah. you know, and, and, but there's something really great about the color. It's, it's funny because the, the palette is so different, you know, mm-hmm. it's kind of like, you think of like grains and like sand and like those sort of tones. I can imagine that would be informative. And, or at least, and winter. <laughs> yeah, winter yeah. is something you don't think about until you live through it. And I thought after Alfred in Boston that I knew winter, but winter in Iowa is whipping and sharp yeah. and um probably also I just wasn't wearing enough clothes home from the bar but like really cold <laughs> and, yeah. and there's just a starkness to it that yeah that that I it was striking I went back last year I was a visiting artist back um and it was pretty magical to head back there for sure yeah it's there's a peacefulness to it right mm-hmm. something like nice and quiet and for some reason really integral to our election process anyways that's right. an aside so <laughs> So what did you do like after you were getting ready to, what was the next, the plan for what was coming next? Sure. So, um, so my last year of Iowa, I, um, applied for a ton of teaching jobs and residencies and I got none of them. I was rejected from every single one of them. Um, and I stuck around town and I worked in the, the hospital in Iowa City hanging artwork, which had a pretty cool art collection. Like there was Augustine in there and some Kellys and stuff. Um, so I had some real hands-on physical experience with, with art handling. And then I, the, the kind of second round of residencies and job cycle came up and I applied for all the residencies that I'd been too afraid to apply for the first time and I got into all three of them. So I did seven months back to back at Yaddo, McDowell and Bemis in Omaha. Um, and packed up and basically lived out of my Dodge Colt uh, and traveled you know, back east and then all the way back to the Midwest and just worked for, for seven months and, and set off kind of in a panic thinking, what if I don't actually want to be a painter? Like, what, what have I done? And, and thought, you know, if I come out of this seven months and I still have ideas and I still feel um, curious about this, then I'll know I've made the right choice and if I don't, then I'll get my real estate license or something. Like I'll, I'll figure out the plan B. Um, but right. I, you know, I, I love that. I'm a, I'm a very social person. I, I'm an extrovert. I, I like to be around new people doing new things. And so being kind of thrown in as a, I mean, I was 24 at the time, being kind of thrown into the environment of being at McDowell with Michael Shabon and um, being at Yado with Rick Moody and like dealing with these authors and musicians and other artists who I knew and loved was was just a blast. I was too young to know that I, I was doing anything dumb. You know, it was just having a good time. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and everything was kind of confined to my car, so I, I had pretty modest expectations for myself as far as what I could make um, and did a lot of work on paper and, and small works. And then during that time, I was invited to teach for a year as a sabbatical replacement back at Alfred. So I kind of knew after that that I'd have this one year of teaching experience at my alma mater, which was complicated and, and fun and a kind of weird 
you know, again, kind of a, a foot in both worlds uh, as far as having been a student there, but n now having a, p a position of some authority there. Um, and then from there, I was offered a job at Kent State, which was the farthest job from New York City that I applied for. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Jackpot. <laughs> yep. And it was actually the second time I applied. I had applied for a position the year before at the urging of a mentor from Iowa. So I, I'm, I'm good at the second time, the second time around. Um, and I thought I'll move to Ohio and I'll give it a couple of years and then I'll, I'll move, I'll get that dream job at Bard or whatever. And uh, 16 years later, I'm, I'm still here and I, I have stopped apologizing for living in Ohio. I actually really feel incredibly lucky to be able to do everything that I want to do from this pretty supportive spot. Yeah. I mean, uh, that's a long tenure. Yep. Yep. Um, I've lived uh, here longer than professor? I've lived. I'm full professor. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, this is my 16th year. Um, but you know, it's a research institution and even though it's not as well funded as many research institutions, I have been able to have either a sabbatical or a creative research leave every three or four years to have a semester off, um, to yeah, work, which times support. up nicely with, you know, showing with Rachel and, and other, um, exhibition opportunities. And, you know, I can have a family here and I can have friends here who are not just artists and I can fly anywhere from the Akron or Cleveland airport very easily. So... And can I can I go out on a limb and say sure. that you can have a pretty good sized studio for not? I do. Do you want to see it? Money. Yeah. yeah, let's three hundred dollars a month. Here's my studio. What? I'm sorry. Say that again. Yeah, you heard it right. Three hundred bucks a month. Oh my gosh. Um, so so you can you can really plead the case for people because you know we have students. Well, you have students who are like, do I have to move to a city to do this? And the answer yeah. is. No, but it but, helps but to there's know a people. But. Right. I mean, that, it's yeah, the there but. Yeah, there is a but. It's the but that's so tricky. Um, <laughs> Again, <because> that <laughs> statement could go. <laughs> the but is tricky. <laughs> I feel like I've said that three or four times this week in like a wide range of uh, situations. <laughs> Diversity of applications. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, the but is tricky. So, yeah, I make a good case for living in what... It's not exactly the middle of nowhere, but, you know, it's not New York or L.A. or Chicago. Um, and my students do push back and say, well, why do I have to move to New York or L.A. or Chicago? You never lived in those places. But I was married to somebody who lived in New York for years, and I have a still very rich community of friends and professional, you know, connections. It sounds stupid, yeah. but you know what I mean, um, who live in those places. And... I didn't grow up here, so I think changing locations from where you grew up to someplace else, whether it's city to city or city to country or country to country, um, just like being uncomfortable in a new place is really important, and, and I yeah. certainly encourage them to do that. Um, and I'm back, you know, I'm in New York four times a year at least. I, I, in non-COVID times, I'm on the road all the time. Um, and so I think that that just breadth and expansion is, is something that Instagram can try to duplicate, but can't really duplicate. So we do I mean, with our students here, we bring 
them to the city twice a year. Um, Cleveland is really having kind of a moment as a Rust Belt city that's seeing some reinvigoration with the front yeah. triennial that started a couple of years ago and is on schedule to, to have its second iteration next summer. Um, MOCA Cleveland and the Cleveland Museum of Art and even the Akron Art Museum have been doing some really interesting programming lately that's acknowledging uh, diverse voices and a change in, in museum culture and so there are ways to there are ways to have both there's culture I think yeah. which is important yeah. but yeah I yeah. agree with you it's like you gotta find somewhere that if it's outside of like the major metropolis mm-hmm. you know centers like you have to find a place that has culture mm-hmm. and um, there is some support what even if it's not like fully financial if there's just some support and it mm-hmm. makes and then at the same time that you have you know connections elsewhere or that you can still c- keep a dialogue with people in a place that will create opportunities broader than just where you are sure you know and I, mean? I think I'll, that's the like secret. being perfectly like the what it really comes down to is if I wasn't working with a gallery in New York that I really am happy to be working with, I might be singing a different tune because it, I, I developed my relationship with Rachel Uffner when I was younger and didn't have children and able to kind of flip back and forth between, between states all the time. Um, I don't know at this point if I'd be able to put the groundwork into cultivating that kind of relationship. Um, and I don't know if I'd be as thrilled with my life in small town Ohio if I didn't have that, didn't have that. Um, yeah. So, like, I, I know that I'm, I'm speaking from a, a place of privilege that I do have this great support system in New York, um, which makes it easy to, to, you know, be okay with living in a town that has not good restaurants. <laughs> <laughs> right. Which is... Let's be honest. That's the most important thing. <laughs> kind of <laughs> a museum, a great museum, sure, but that food. Cleveland really has great restaurants. Kent is getting there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm from Pittsburgh originally, yeah, and that's it true. got like a few yeah. years ago, Zagat gave it like one of the best food towns in America, and that's yeah. just because it's so damn cheap there that people yeah. would move out of New York and go yeah. open a restaurant there for like nothing, basically. Yeah, and Pittsburgh. And, I mean, uh, there's people at Kent who commute from Pittsburgh. I mean, that's how close we are. So yeah. Yeah. And it's a great culture city. I mean, you got the Warhol, you know, that's kind of what you need, you know, yeah. Yeah. good food, a good food, then, you know, museum, art school, <laughs> decent schools, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. Like, yeah. Right. Right. Food first. <laughs> um, I've so become a really you, good cook. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, so, but you got you. So you got the relationship with Rachel like early on. That was before you were settled. In. Like, so it wasn't before Kent, but it was before it was before I had kids. Yeah, that's those are the, mark, <laughs> the markers, right? Job, right. kids. Yeah, yep. it is though. Like, to be honest, <laughs> for those of us is. who have kids, yeah, your art life. I had a teacher. I won't name who it is. She's so funny. She just came up to me one time is like just clearly now that I teach one of those days you know when you're just Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. over it Mm -hmm. she was like this is what you it was me and my friend and this is what you need to do you want you guys want to make art you know just like came in just guns blazing yeah yeah we really want to make art this is what you do don't have kids don't have a mortgage 
and there was a third thing, and I can't remember what it was, but it was the don't have kids and the mortgage thing that really sung clean. Was <laughs> the so teacher funny. a woman? Yes. Okay. I'm surprised she even said that to you, frankly. I mean, I feel like I was given that advice a lot. From um, men? No. From, and, and it was actually when I was at all those residencies as such a young person where, I mean, I guess in normal worlds, 25 year olds have children, but in my world, you think about it when you're 35. So, um, right, right. but I saw a lot of people, men and women who didn't have families and um, kind of gave maybe some credit for their success to that. But, and that is fine. I begrudge nobody their personal choices, but I, I always knew that I wanted to enter into the experiment of parenthood and that yeah. that was just part of the kind of um, deathbed like experiment that like where I always think like when I'm lying on my deathbed do I want to be surrounded by my paintings or people who I love and who love me and um, you know luckily right now I might be able to do both but um, I don't know I, I, I've been wary of always putting all my eggs in one basket whether that's totally. as a mother yeah. or a teacher or an artist and um, you know on, on bad days it feels like I am doing none of those things particularly well and on good days I feel lucky that I have an opportunity to dabble in all of them dabble right. don't quote me on dabble that's a terrible word but you know what I mean it's all kind of it's a wide spectrum but I will say for me, experientially, just two things have happened. One is when you do have a family or you have kids, like your time is definitely going to be, you know, mm -hmm. compromised. Of mm -hmm. course, unless you're just that parent who's right. like leaves their kid on the floor, like whatever, right. I don't care. Right. But if you care and you want to be a good parent, your time's going to be compromised. So I feel like I make less, but I'm such a more rounded, yeah. more kind sure. of like, like my life is so much better in a way on certain days uh, <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I mean it's fuller and all that so well and you it, don't dick you know, around in the studio so much you know I mean you like go to you get it yeah. done you, you come exactly and you, you punch the clock right yeah. it's like no longer yeah. I used to just have these long days where it was like la di da like I can yeah. just surf the net for a half an hour and sure. so now it's a little more pointed but um but yeah I don't like that argument of like you know don't have get like career and all that stuff it's it's just like you know, That's a lazy argument. Like that. I think there's yeah, ways yeah, to, totally. to there's ways to do everything, and I I really try to make an effort when I'm home with my kids to be home with my kids, and that's e that if I'm being perfectly frank, that's much easier to do as a divorced mother because it's right. a set amount of time, and I know that when they're with their father, like it's on me to get the work done, like that there's that that I just I have that time kind of mandated by the courts for me to be in the studio um, and they're young right, and, right. They, and they need me to be present with them now which doesn't mean I'm not like you know scrolling through my phone and yelling at them about picking up their clothes and all the like normal things that all parents do but um, I don't want to sound too virtuous here but it, it I think it's a tension for a lot of working moms or just all parents to kind of be feeling like you're you know, in needing to be two places at once all the time. That, that's where COVID has been interesting because now we are not two places at once, but we're doing two jobs in the same place or three jobs in the right. same place. And you know, having my studio not on campus and having it 
downtown in a space that I can be in even when the university was closed was like a total gift to be able to get out and get out of the house, bring the kids here or, or leave them with my partner and, and come steal an hour by myself. Um, but then when you're back, you're really back and you're really, pre really present. And their father is a, a painter too. So for all of the strife that that caused while we were together, it does give us a real understanding now of how we can support each other and make this family continue to operate even if we're not all living together anymore. Right. That uh, comedian's line of like, no divorce happened for the wrong reason. Oh, <laughs> like, yeah. I know that we're not supposed to like Louis C.K. anymore, but he really got right, me through right. some tough times. <laughs> no, that that was a pretty good bit, though. It was a like, really good bit. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Like Woody Allen, I watch movies, love him. Obviously, there's, there's you know, issues with right, the rest right. of it. But that Louis C.K. <laughs> bit about like, no divorce ever happened for the wrong. It's so funny. It's just like, it's kind of true. It's like. Oh, it's you know, totally you're just mad true. At me for being happier. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and I remember, and I'm going to throw Scott, my ex, under the bus here, and I adore him. We're going to an opening together this afternoon. Everything's fine, but I remember this like, will air. Uh, this will air later. Don't worry. He, he won't even. He won't even <laughs> he won't, listen. He um, won't hear this. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I've said this to him. I mean, I've recounted this moment a million times with him. But I remember a few months after we started co-parenting, me saying something like, "Isn't it so much easier now?" Like. You know, when, you, when you're two parents and you're not getting along, you're taking it out on your kids or you're playing each other against each other, even without knowing that you're doing it. And, and I just, I felt like I had this breathing room that I didn't have before. And I was like, it's just so much easier now. And he was like, are you kidding me? It's so much harder now. And I was like, that's because it was never actually 50-50. Like it like hit me. It was like <laughs> right? realization yeah, yeah, yeah. that like we'd called it 50-50, but so, you know, I'm sorry. Scott for, for bringing that up but uh, we found some balance now where I think we're both able to be better parents and more productive in the studio so right it, it, well for anyone who for all those who are going to send hate mail for the 14 things we've talked about today <laughs> <laughs> but the point is is it's all hard it's all difficult right like right. any of these circumstances are really tricky and there's no right answer and no one's right. figured it out and talking about it is the best thing you can do because you can sort of relate these experiences and sort of get things off your chest i think and it's absolutely you know, nothing's yeah. easy and it, especially like choosing a creative path in life is not necessarily like yeah there is some really great things about it like you don't necessarily have the boss that like other right. people have but yeah. you yeah. know you you also don't have the structure and the the you know that that people. feeling of, mm -hmm. of yeah like it's it's you know there's ups and downs to everything so. anybody who says they have it all figured out has it figured out at the cost of somebody else like i'm con you know there's no way right. that you're anybody's doing it alone so if you feel like you have it figured out it's because somebody else is like paying for it somehow so it, it's a, we, yeah i'm all for i'm italian and i'm a loud mouth and i'm all for just airing like getting it getting the truth out there or at least what's worked for me because i i'm happy and i think that i've figured out a creative way to do a lot of different things and if i can share that with my friends or my students without crossing too many boundaries or getting too canceled, um, I'm happy to do that. Right, well I think that's a big thing is, you know, as a teacher too, it's like this kind of, you know, well what works for me works for me, you know what right. I mean? I yeah. found that that works for me and yeah. that's not for everyone. I think that's so important because, you know, I think younger students are always wanting to know like, what's the path? How yeah. do you do this? What? Is, yeah. 
there is none. Like it's different for every single person. So you have to kind of understand. I love when I have a student who never wants to work. Mm-hmm. Um, and and they're like, well, how do I get into grad school? Right. And it's like, well, you might want to work a little. You, you might know what I mean? Work. It's like, it's, right, right. yeah, it's different. Like there's different things for different people. Like there's some people who work really hard and they just have no motivation to whatever it is. There's not, this is one way for anything. No, and I think that defining all, like recognizing that there are all different ways to define success, the sooner you can figure that out, the better. It took me a long time to figure that out. It took me a really long time to figure out that there wasn't one thing that, like one pyramid that we were all aspiring towards the top of, and that if you didn't have that ever narrowing pinnacle that you were not going to be happier, that you would you know, not be quote unquote successful. And, and I think as you get older, that just broadens it more naturally, though maybe not necessarily. But for students, they think I want to get into a really good grad school or I want to show my work in New York or I want to like be an Instagram art celebrity. I mean, it's like the things that they want, I can't even like fathom half the time now. So um, I have to listen to <laughs> them as much as I'm asking changes? them to listen to me, but right. <laughs> I just want enough time to do the laundry and right. to like go Seriously. send the emails. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it just, I yeah. want to order a pizza tonight. That is a success. <laughs> right. I mean, that's why that I, childhood is so great. You know, because yeah. you don't unencumbered by that crap. You know what I mean? It's like you could just. Are, are they though? Thing. I don't know. My six-year-old is, will draw a picture and say, "Is this good?" And I'm like, "I'm not. Are you fucking kidding me? Like, I'm not going to answer that. <laughs> like, first of all, that's I do this all day long. Like, I'm not going to come home and have a bus me on holiday with you. Um, second of all, like, what was your goal? And do you feel you accomplished it? Which he just you know stares at me blankly. But it, I am. I'm not being flippant. Trying to get them to develop their own, you know, rationale for why they do something and how they evaluate it afterwards and not just rely on me. But so I don't know that they're totally unencumbered. I will say that in the COVID era, living in Kent, Ohio has mean that all the neighborhood kids have kind of regressed to this like stranger things, 1980s childhood of just being outside Uh, all the time um, till the streetlights come on. maybe not wearing their masks as much as they should, but being outside and being moving and that that has That's been good. kind of an awesome gift to, to see not them happening explore. Here. Yeah, I know. I know. Computers. Everyone's know. on there. <laughs> There's plenty of that too. I don't want to be Pollyanna about it. There's like plenty of that too. Or sometimes they sit on the front porch with a friend and play on their computers, but I, I don't care. They're outside and they're yeah. with other people and they're, they're, they're figuring right. it out. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's... I love that idea, though, that you're like our teacher. Like, I've been doing this all day. No, I'm like, done. Get this out of my face. Can you imagine, like, if a, like if you're a chef and you come home and you're like, yeah. your kid's like, can you make me dinner? And you're like, get out of my face. I've been cooking all day. Mac and cheese, right. Exactly. Microwave. I can totally right see that. I think yeah. I, we have a creative house, but, and my kids like art, but they, um, at this point, are just as interested in, like, physics and, you know, f- things that I am not interested. Coding? Which is great. Coding. A little bit of coding. Yep. Yeah. And I feel like all kids are like, well, kids who are on the computer are just like, I want to code. I'm like, that's cool. You can code the machine that's going to save me when I get older. Right. (laughs) (laughs) You can teach my class for me on digital painting. (laughs) Right. You can download me to the matrix that will eventually happen and help me out down the line. 
you're my digital retirement plan. <laughs> um, what about what about your paintings? So like the stuff you're working on now, like your paint. Well, I guess the whole reason I wanted to talk to you too is that you know these super rich collage like really interesting paintings. Like how what do you you know, like you were doing the stuff you were doing in school, like now, mm-hmm. what is your sort of influence and like what gets you going visually and what are these paintings about sure. as far as... See, so I've like carefully concerned. deflected away from the artwork for an entire hour now, but... Um. It's the one <laughs> thing people will once in a while send me and be like, well, you wait way too long to talk about art and their art or whatever. Oh, but, but it's all the same. It's like all the same it stuff. It is. Yeah. I agree. I agree. Um... So I, I feel in some ways like I've been making the same painting for the last 15 years, um, but that I'm, I'm going to try to not put too much dead air here into this podcast, but that really is it, that kind of iterative, like building block process of things slowly shifting. And yeah. the, maybe the way that I've thought about it before is that um, I went from really traveling a lot as a young person and being in in a car driving around the country to work in different studios year after year after year to being in one place for now almost 16 years and that the work reflects that, that I used to take a lot of outside influences and bring them in literally as digital collages or things that I would trace and sketch in the studio and then make paintings from and that kind of being more static or uh, being within the same space for so long has led to this kind of language or vocabulary of color and stripes and techniques to uh, guide the images from within instead of there being these external forces guiding from without. So I like making work now more than I ever liked it. it. It it is absolutely still a struggle, and I beat my head against the wall daily. But it doesn't have the same, um, you know, need for daily justification that it does when you're a student or, or a younger yeah. painter. Um, I find that very liberating. I I've come to this collection of materials. I mentioned casein, which is a milk protein-based paint um, on wooden panels that are sized with marble dust ground as uh, a kind of it took me a while to even realize that there was that connection to ceramics but more so there's a connection to architecture and the built environment and using these materials that wood and marble and even casein were used uh, you know as interiors and exteriors in buildings for many many years so they kind of feel like they're made out of the stuff that they are also referencing in the imagery of them um and then Maybe the most recent shift, which I am perfectly willing to concede a viewer might not notice, is having these spaces that I'm kind of building be less um, less like discrete structures or objects and more like complicated emotional or psychological spaces. And I, I, I've been thinking about talking about them that way within the last year or so because we have been home with each other in a different way. You know, that the same four, four people are in my house all the time, um, kind of jostling for attention or um, negotiating for um, space somehow in a way that I really see myself kind of pushing those tensions with, within the, the images that I'm making. So, um, you know, I am making work right now for a fourth 
show with Rachel Uffner that will likely be next year sometime. And I've spent so much, so many years thinking about this work in relationship to the built environment and urban design um, and the way that cities grow or the way that uh, people move through built spaces. And it just kind of occurred to me that that they are so much or just as much about um, like a really rowdy Thanksgiving dinner with the whole family in attendance or something that that there are these kind of um, negotiations or tensions or little arguments that are happening in the paintings uh, that that make it a little bit uncomfortable or, or anxiety provoking, uh, but that there is ultimately this kind of uh, scaffolding or um, underpinning of support or love or uh, just like a, a trustworthy entity that kind of holds the whole thing together. Yeah, it's interesting to think about how the context of that changes in our current environment. Mm-hmm. Because if you look at it like a painting like by Bruegel, where there's all these people in like a tight mm-hmm. space, and you think, oh man, that's feels so different now than it would like a year ago. Sure. And the same th- with the sort of convergence of space and that tension and the kind of, um, you know, the energy of all this like if if each part of your painting is a voice of all these voices shouting and mm-hmm. stating their mm-hmm. claim and how different that feels now than it would like a year ago that yeah. will be really i think a really interesting show to see next year in relation to you know what we're living through yeah and it's not something i ever thought i'd be talking about with the work right that there that there's yeah. even any nod to something personal though you know these dynamics that I'm describing aren't specific to me and my family, but um, like we are loud. (laughs) We are an obnoxious group of people. (laughs) And I really do want there to be something, uh, some, some kind of disquiet or something a little bit annoying about the work too. That is, I think what we're all feeling, right? Like kind of grateful to have, have this um, dog pile of human beings in my house together, but that that it's, you know, it's, it's overwhelming as well. Yeah. Um, what music do you think your painting sounds like? Oh God, I knew you were going to ask me something like this. And yet I didn't think that I should come up with an answer. Um, I think the, that abstraction gets talked about in terms of jazz all the time. I am not a jazz person so I'm going to just bypass that part altogether um I think that my paintings feel more like like uh MSNBC right now like they're more like they're not even about music as but but they are about sound and they are about interruption and um uh conflict and people talking over one another so I don't know what the musical equivalent of that is. What do you What do you think? I mean, I, that, like, I think that's a different sort of... answer than what I list. Like, what I listen to in my studio is not the answer to that question. What, Megadeth? <laughs> <laughs> what do you listen to in the studio? I love Megadeth. Um, <laughs> I listen to... It would go to... well. The Megadeth would partner well with the t-shirts that you're going to make after this podcast, which are, yeah. I'm not a jazz person. I'm not a jazz person a, and butts are great difficult tea. or whatever the, whatever that, whatever yeah, that yeah, was. Yeah. <laughs> Cancel <Was> me. It? <laughs> <laughs> Hate mail. Hate mail receiver. 
I hope we, we get, get a, a lot of. I hope we get so much hate mail. That would be so exciting, um, and also <laughs> disappoint, disappointing. Um, well, that means people are listening, which is good. <laughs> they're listening exactly. <laughs> I listen to. Um, I'm. I'm. You know, I'm guilty, like many people, of like sort of turning myself over to Spotify these days. Um, you know, again, like being at college in the '90s and having music be such a big part of that and and whatever the kind of latest thing that people discovered kind of being what was on in in your headphones for three weeks uh now i tend to like latch on to one album and then listen to whatever spotify recommends i listen to after that that's also going to not be a popular answer with your with your listeners um but i lately i've been into what i would call the um Oh, I had a good term for this. Oh, like the affected male vocalist. <laughs> like I know what you're talking about. Yeah, like yeah. Future Islands or Kurt Vile or like somebody who maybe has a little theater or um, Jarvis Cocker or uh, I don't know, like a little, I guess a little theatrics I guess to 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 his voice so um I can really sing along to that and kind of act it out in a performative way um that that keeps things energized I also went through a big Sam Cooke phase earlier this summer when I was feeling kind of sad about the state of the world um I go back to like Graceland a lot like you know I'm 44 I have like a large swath of of my music and my parents' music to kind of pull from um, on any given day. Yeah. No, that that all makes sense. You know, I was thinking about there's got to be some sort of like um, Philip Glass-like composition where there or Steve Reich or something where there's yeah. voices that just compile on themselves. I mean, I'm sure I've heard some I'm of sure that. there is. But I maybe don't want to listen like to that, that though. <laughs> well, that's the funny thing that you're mentioning because when you said, like, I'm not a jazz person, um, you're you're making images that you said do you want them to be kind of like loud and obnoxious yeah. in a way like yeah. there's a lot of stuff going on and I mean there's people who like even if you're a family that's very loud or kind of abrasive mm-hmm. not saying you are but I'm just saying if you are no, they probably yeah. don't want to be around other loud yeah. and abrasive people it just that's just the way they're wired or something you know what I mean well, there's so, a critical so there's like a point of diminishing returns <laughs> let's put it that yes. way yes that's a good point. Well, I mean, you know, and if you listen to, you know, Free Jazz by by Ornette Coleman, you might not like the sound of that sonically or it may not be enjoyable, but um, you may think that like, oh, yeah, there's a dynamic there that's kind of sure. like my paintings. That's like I like really loud colors. I don't mm-hmm. wear really loud colors. Yeah. Do you know I've, what I mean? Like I, have, I'll I make had this paintings exact conversation like earlier this week. <laughs> Yeah, it's weird. Um, it's like when you create mm-hmm. something, it, it can be outside of what you necessarily like. You know what I mean? Right. It, it's it, it might just be something you're interested in. You know? Yeah. Or like I'm a loud person, so if I were to also be like the um, cliched art professor with like funky glasses and like a big artful like pin, like that's a bridge too far. Like we don't need that. You know? Like you know, you can have like the gray sofa and the really bright cushion like throw pillows and like that's enough so you kind of have to it has to be measured or just you know is subsuming in a way where it lacks any kind of clarity or intention yeah no I think it's you know 
it it's great when work to when you have a relationship with the work that's outside of just like I'm just making the things that I love to look at. You know, right, right. if there is a little self tension there, I think it's good. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I it's like a critical eye. You know, you need to have that in your own life as well as when you're looking at other things. It's so easy to judge everything else, but you know, to bring that into your own. You know, sometimes I'll I'll make things and be like, why am I even you know, why is this the thing I'm drawn to making? Right. You know, right. even though I know what I'm doing, at the end of the day, it's like I'll see someone else's work and be like, oh, wow, that's really, you know, sometimes you want to go in and, and just push paint around like a caveman. Yeah. You know, or but you're it's like, just why not I me. Right. Or, yeah. or you see something, um, you, you see something in pop culture and you love it, and then you realize that it's like not even what you want in your work you just saw it some like there's just it's just because it's familiar or it just like hit it 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 scratched a different itch and it maybe doesn't necessarily need to come into the paintings you know I'll see some clothing I like or there's this new sneaker store below my studio that's like really expensive sneakers that I am not cool enough to wear but love to just like gaze in the windows (laughs) at um and I have to be like a little careful of like how to mine that information because I, I so much of my color choices are like things that I still collect and have a folder in my phone of photographs of like, you know, strangers clothing that I that I click or something. So um, making sure that I'm using it in a way that is a little bit removed from its original source so it doesn't just look like the J. Crew catalog, but maybe the J. Crew right. cl- catalog mashed up with the hike in the park that I went on last week or something. So, um, yeah, it's still like, it's, it's really energizing to notice things and record things and bring stuff back. But the really like, uh, for lack of a better word, creative part or inventive part is, um, uh, you know, what you do with all, like what kind of soup you make out of all those ingredients when you get back to the studio. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's the beauty of art too is that it gets you outside of your own likes and your own you know what I mean you you sort of like as I've aged I've gotten more and more interested in things that like wouldn't have been of interest to me when I was younger because I was so myopic and you know we need more sort of broad views in our society I think yeah that could be the value of art for all the people are like what the hell is art good for right maybe that maybe like being okay not understanding someone or something else and like trying to sort of relate to it Instead of just pushing back and saying that's BS, you know. Yeah. Oh, sure. And like, I think we probably have to have that conversation in the classroom at the beginning of every semester too, and 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 helping our students justify why they're doing what they're doing. Um, and I know I'm talking about teaching a lot, but it is very much the kind of way to have the conversation that I would normally have in my own head out loud. So it's, right. it's that, that feedback loop is, is absolutely helpful. But, you know, when yeah. you go to a new, a new country, you go to a museum and you look at that country's artwork. It's like nobody questions it once it's 100 years old. It's just the, the stuff that's being made right now that um, feels unfamiliar. Right. No, I agree. So you have a pot, you don't, no one knows dates, but right. Every, everything's right. a little iffy, but you got that show in New York in 2020. Well, I hope so. Cause I wrote this sabbatical proposal with that, with that in mind. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, yeah, I think I everyone's going to be, be everyone's going to understand. <laughs> Every, nobody's going to begrudge me if it's pushed back. I, and I certainly, you know, what I 
say to Rachel all the time is like I don't I don't care when it is I just like need to know that it's going to happen eventually I'll I'll I will fill the vacuum um, you know I'll, I'll work up until the last minute for sure yeah. um, I requested not having a uh, January or February show just because I've had three of those and driving the workout from Ohio uh, in a polar vortex is getting kind of old so. Um, yeah, other than that, I don't know. But, you know, they've got to, all the galleries have to play catch up. They have to figure out what to do in person versus what to do virtually. Um, there is understandably and rightfully a uh, uh, need to be more inclusive of new artists right now and new voices. And, like, all of that is important and needs to be figured in. So, like I said at the beginning, I feel really lucky to even have this relationship and have people who want to see what I'm doing. And, um, you know, well, I think your that. students are lucky to have a teacher like you that's and Kent State. I think you're a good, uh, this is a good recruitment <laughs> tool for people to go study yeah, with you. You know, we have a, um, uh, thank you. I'll, I will try to accept that compliment. Um, I appreciate <laughs> hearing that. And I, again, try to, <laughs> share my professional experience with them as much as anything else. Uh, I also have been here long enough now that the kind of old guard of faculty who hired me for the most part have since retired. So I've been yeah. on enough search committees where I feel like I've been able to, to really build a school of art, a, a faculty that um, is as ambitious and energized as I certainly was when I started here, if I'm, you know, maybe not always feeling that every day now. So my new colleague in painting, Sean Powell, was at Hunter teaching part-time for many years. Um, it's been really fun to have a, a kind of teammate and partner to help build our program uh, in a way that has an eye towards the art world outside of Kent, but also um, really working with, with what we have, like trying to get the ring as much juice out of what we have here too. So um, yeah, it's been fun to be on this team and to help build the, the kind of new team. Nice. Well, it was great to sort of Zoom meet you. And uh, I, I can't wait to see, I can't wait to see that show in per I mean, um, hopefully we can all get out there and see more stuff in person. Uh, very soon. I would almost there. rather have the show pushed back a year and be able to do it in person because I've been doing yeah. everything, you know, since I don't live anywhere near New York. It's like I don't it, it'll be it would it would be a bummer to have it only exist through the screen. Um, right. Totally. Since I'm so far away and feel like experience half the art world that way anyway. So um, I can be patient for sure. Right. Well, to that effect, people can follow you like you do social media and, and, and you post stuff there and then the you have a website. I Is don't have my own website. Way? I have I, well, on the gallery I have Rachel, site. Yeah, the gallery site. And then I my name is my Instagram account and then Kent State School of Art. Joe. There you go. Cool. Thanks so much for talking. Thank you so much. This was really fun. 